0: Please take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Today we'll be studying verses 8 through 26. And what I've noticed while studying 2 Timothy these last several weeks for this uh, summer break from Luke, is uh, that Paul packs a lot of material into a short amount of time, so I will not be able to say everything about every detail of every part of this passage. So just be aware of that, and if there are any details of the passage that I inadvertently leave out or don't go into as much detail about as you might have questions about, hopefully you'll be able to catch me uh, after the service and ask those questions. Let me read 2 Timothy Chapter 2, from verse 8 down through verse 26, you're welcome to follow along in the printed copy in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we invite you to take one either now or after the service from the table in the back. Verse 8 through verse 26, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, Not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable... He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. One of my boys recently asked me, Did you know that teachers are required to only tell their classes the truth? Is that true, Teresa? Is there an asterisk next to that? Yes? Uh, I said, yes, that's right. I did know that. And I said, but unfortunately, some teachers are confused about what the truth is. And some teachers are confused about whether there is even truth In other words, they may think that truth is defined by the individual. And we know that in our day, certain people define truth a certain way. Oprah would probably define truth by one set of terms, and ESPN might define it by another set of terms, and Disney in another way. And beyond those major entities, your friends on social media probably define certain issues as being the definition of truth and another set of issues as the definition of error. People may declare that their opinion is truth, while others may say that what you define as truth is mere opinion. So it can kind of go both ways. And the Apostle Paul knew something of this struggle, to hold faithfully to the truth, while seemingly everyone around you struggles to define and defend truth. And While the world that we live in, as has always been the case, going all the way back to Noah, for instance, while the world is confused on truth, this passage tells us very clearly that God himself is the sovereign master. He is himself the definition of truth. And so we as Christians then aim to please him with our lives, no matter the cost. Even when standing for truth costs you deeply, maybe even costs you your life. He's the sovereign master, so we aim to please him. We aim to be useful to him as he is the master. So that raises the question. I hope that in your mind then, the next question that comes to your mind is, how do I live in a way that is useful to God? That should be the, the question at the, the forefront of your mind when you hear that it's possible to please him in the first place. And I think this passage gives us four ways that we can seek to serve God as our sovereign master. The first would be to make clear the truth of the gospel. Here's the reality, that you can have solid convictions, one direction or the other, about the economy, whether it's going to go into a recession, whether it's going to boom. You can have solid convictions about a political agenda, whether it's good, whether it's evil. You can have convictions about the COVID vaccine, whether it's good, whether it's evil. Had a conversation about that this week. You can have solid convictions about climate change. You can have solid convictions about prison reform. We could go on and on. Sometimes our convictions about these matters stem from genuine desire to apply the truth of the Bible. But the fact of the matter is that we as individuals and as a church, if we're clear on all those other issues but not on the gospel, we've really missed the boat. We have to be clear on the facts of the gospel, on what the gospel is. If we're clear on those other matters but not the gospel, we're really just heading down a dead end. And the gospel itself is a matter of life and death. Those other matters are important. They affect our lives. But they aren't life and death. We're dealing... As a church, as individuals, when we share the gospel, when we clearly present the gospel, we're dealing with where someone will spend eternity. That sounds really important. So we need to know the truth. We need to be clear on the truth. And so what we do is uh, we need to recognize that, first of all, the gospel revolves around a person. This is where verse 8 starts. Remember Jesus Christ. He is the sum of... Of the gospel, And when he says that we need to remember Christ risen from the dead, he's essentially summarizing the whole gospel there. For him to have raised from the dead, that means he also had to have died. And he also had to have been buried. And then he rose from the dead. So you need to remember that the gospel revolves around a person who truly died, was buried, and is risen. And when he says that you need to remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David, the second detail about who this Jesus is, We need to remember that he's truly human. That's what he's doing is he's tracing his physical lineage all the way back to being the king of Israel, the true king that God said would would be the one who would rule over the world back in 2 Samuel 7, alluded to in Psalm 2 and throughout the Old Testament. He truly died, was buried and is risen. He truly is human. The gospel revolves around this person. Secondly, the gospel makes promises, and these are laid out for us particularly in verses 11 and 12 in this saying that is trustworthy. And I believe three times in 1 Timothy, and here now in 2 Timothy as well, Paul alludes to this trustworthy statement. In other words, you can take this to the bank. This is the truth, and this is why we need to be clear about it, is that Paul is so clear about it. He makes four promises here, That the gospel makes four promises here. The first is that we will live with Christ. If we have died with him, which means that we have been, we have put, we have seen our sin put to death by putting our faith in Christ. We have seen that symbolized by being baptized. We have died with him, and so therefore we will live with him. Secondly, we will reign with him, which is really the point of revelation that we are more than conquerors through Christ, which is why you hold on to the truth, which is what the whole book of Revelation is about. It's a letter written to people. I realize we're not talking about Revelation, but it is what it is about. It's a letter written to tell people, keep holding on to the truth, even when it feels like the whole world is against you. Because ultimately, sin loses. God's enemies lose. Jesus wins. And so you hold on to the truth for dear life. We will reign with him if we endure. And he talks about this endurance over and over again here in Second Timothy. Perhaps you're, a, you're, you're here today and you're not a Christian. And you would be asking the question right now then, how do I know if I'm going to live with Him? And that's a very important question because we are all rebels. It doesn't take long to figure that out when you read the Bible. It doesn't take long to figure that out when you look at your own life and how you spend your time and what you're drawn toward. What you're magnetically moved toward. And you realize, man, something is really wrong inside me. And if you want to Be a little less depressing about it. Maybe it's even more depressing. You can zoom out and say, well, let's let's just see what other people are drawn toward. Okay, that is pretty depressing too. There's a big problem in here. There's a big problem out there because we are rebels. So how do I know if I'm going to live with him? All those who put their faith in Christ alone for salvation will live with him, will reign with him forever. And so if you have questions about that, we want to talk to you after the service. A third promise that the gospel makes is that those who deny him will not have life. If we deny him, he also will deny us. That sounds scary. It's a reminder that in the truth of the gospel, not everyone chooses to repent. Some people choose to live in their rebellion till the day they die and say, You can't possibly convince me that there is a God. That there, that there is a, a man named Jesus who died for my sin. And, and you could go on down the list. You can't possibly tell me that's the truth. I don't want anything to do with that, God. And I've had people tell me those kinds of comments. Maybe you have too as you've shared the gospel with them. But well, maybe this raises the question in your mind of, well, can a Christian deny him? Like, is this who Paul is talking about if we deny him? Well, I do think if you look down at verse 17, he talks about two specific individuals named Hymenaeus and Philetus Hymenaeus is mentioned back in 1 Timothy as well, saying that Hymenaeus and Alexander have turned away from the gospel. So another person named Alexander who shows up later in 2 Timothy as well. So there are people who wear the Christian clothes, maybe you could say put on the Christian uniform, and then eventually they shed that uniform, and they say, we're on the other side. And what Paul is saying is, they may have looked like they were Christians for a while. And maybe the gospel that they're preaching sounded pretty close. It's like when you put in an address in a GPS and you leave off, say, the last two letters. Say, you know, that's 5400 West Avenue, Northwest. Which, why you would have that? Well, go to Wisconsin. And you have all kinds of things like that. But if you leave that Northwest off, you're going to end up at the wrong place. And when we leave off just the little details of the gospel, we end up in the wrong place, spiritually speaking. And so maybe Hymenaeus and Philetus were getting tired of the old, old story and felt like there was some kind of a modification they could make to it that would make it more appealing to people. And make it seem more likely for people to become Christians if you leave off this detail or add on this detail. If you go above the line or below the line, we could say. And so, no, I would say a Christian cannot deny him. Someone who is truly a child of God will always persevere to the end. But I think we could probably all think of friends, maybe even family members, who are not persevering. Will they come back to the faith? We pray they do. But if they don't, what we're, what we're seeing here, a promise of the gospel is that all those who deny Christ will be denied by Christ. Verse 13, it's kind of hard to know exactly what, which angle Paul is going at this from. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Is that an encouragement to us that in our strain, like when we sing, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast? That's very encouraging. Is that what this is talking about? Very possibly. It's also possible that when he talks about being faithless, it's a synonym with denying him, in which case to say the the, the fact that God remains faithful, he can't deny himself, is to say, if you deny him, if you are faithless, he really is going to reject you. There's not this like in-between period where you'll eventually pay off your debts after life and then God will accept you. No. Now is the time to repent. Now is the day of salvation. So turn in faith to Christ. The gospel revolves around a person. The gospel involves promises, or the gospel makes promises. And third, the gospel requires preaching. Verse 8, Paul says, Remember, Jesus, as preached in my gospel. He's saying, I have faithfully told you the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, as one of my sons said, is what a teacher's job is to do. And when he says this is my gospel, he's simply saying, what I gave you was 100% 100% true. So take that deposit and pass it on. And we talked a little bit about this last week. And then on Monday or Tuesday, we had a beautiful example of this at the soccer camp. One person handed a $50 bill to, I think, Della, who handed it to another person who handed it to me, and I handed it to Clayton. And all of that was entrusting the gospel from one person to another. That was a, a perfect example for that last week. And what we're saying is, Paul, when Paul says, I have given you my gospel, What we're saying is now our job is to take that gospel $50 bill and hand it off to somebody else who will take good care of it until it gets all the way to the bank. So preaching is personal when he says it's my gospel, but preaching must handle the truth rightly. Look at verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, and he talked a lot about not being ashamed in the first passage we looked at, chapter 1 present yourself as one who rightly handles the word of truth. And what that means is that it's possible to preach badly. And I'm not just saying like not being super prepared. I'm saying like saying words that are not true about the gospel. That means that not all preaching is created equal. So maybe the person you like to listen to on YouTube isn't the best person to listen to. And so we would encourage you to Carefully sort through what you're listening to. Even here, evaluate what you're saying with Scripture. Check Scripture with Scripture. Because not all preaching is created equally, and we must handle the truth rightly in verse 15. It means to cut a straight path. Cut the word rightly. Cut it in a straight line. So how do I please the Lord with my life? How do I live in a way that's useful to the Master? By making clear the truth of the Gospel. Secondly, by waging war against error. This is a huge part of this passage. And you realize I'm not going one verse after another, partly because Paul is just kind of dropping all of these ideas one after another over and over and over again. So uh, we're going to kind of work through this theme now. But the second theme in this passage about how to be useful to the Lord is by waging war against error, against false teaching. And one of the main reasons Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in the first place is because there were lots of people preaching a false message. He mentions some of them, Hymenaeus and Philetus in verse 17, but that probably is just a reminder of the fact that there were lots of others too, and he certainly mentions more in chapter 4 and elsewhere. Maybe Timothy wasn't tempted to believe this false gospel himself but people in his churches that he was responsible for probably were. And the times have changed in some ways since the first century. We're not going to deny that, but certainly not in this way. False Gospels may come in different shapes and sizes and maybe in a different kind of wrapping paper, but it's the same in the most important ways. People still deny the truth in the same kinds of ways. And so what do we know about this false teaching about error from this passage right here. Because we could go to lots of other passages to talk about it as well. What's this passage say about error? First of all, we see that error spreads through words. It's not just this virus that you breathe in through the air. He talks about the kinds of words that false teachers use over and over again. Look in verse 16. What's he call it there? Avoid irreverent babble. That's people just droning on and on about God in a way that demeans what he says. Look at verse 17. Their talk these false teachers will their talk will spread like gangrene. Their words are multiplied and go on and on and deceive people. He says to avoid useless arguments. Look in verse 14. Don't quarrel about words. In verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies because the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome in verse 24. Well, it sounds like maybe we should never have theological conversations at all. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He does that throughout all of his letters. But he is saying there are some conversations that are totally fruitless. And if you make minors into majors, that inherently means you're going to make the majors into minors. So avoid making majors into minors by avoiding making minors into majors. So there are some things that you would... Probably like me to say about this particular social issue or theological issue, or that particular social issue or theological issue, and I'm generally not going to say what you want me to say if that's the case. We're not going to make hobby horses the front and center issue in our church. We're going to make what this passage says the front and center issue in our church. And the next week is going to be what the next passage says will be what's front and center. But what that means is that the gospel is going to constantly be front and center. Jesus himself is going to be front and center over and over again. One of the ways that these false teachers were deceiving Christians is mentioned in verse 18. They have swerved from the truth Hymenaeus and Philetus have. Which means that at one point they, they were teaching the truth. And now... Like a driver trying to avoid a deer running across the street. They've pulled off the side of the road. They've swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. What in the world is he talking about? Of course, Jesus' resurrection has already happened. That's not what he's talking about. We just affirmed in the Apostles' Creed. And I believe in the resurrection of the dead. We just sang "And Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Christ in power resurrected. What's the next line? As we will be when he comes. So, what it sounds like Hymenaeus and Philetus have done is made the resurrection maybe some kind of a spiritual idea. Like, well, when you became a Christian, you were then resurrected. But there's no resurrection of the body, it's just your soul that will be resurrected. And Paul's like, yeah, I already dealt with that in 1 Corinthians 15. A whole long chapter on that issue, if you want to go read that another time this afternoon. But these people are confused about an important element of the doctrine of the gospel here, particularly the resurrection. And I think this is is one of the reasons we affirm creeds together week after week. Maybe you feel like I kind of get tired of saying the same ones over and over again. Like we generally rotate two and then we throw in a third for variety, for historical reference, things like this, about once a month or so. And maybe you're like, if only we could have just new creeds. Well, we kind of defeat the point of creeds, for one thing. But secondly, the reason we do it is so that when somebody says, yeah, there's no such thing as a resurrection, you can be like, uh, no, yesterday in church we said something totally differently. Everybody has a creed. Let's just make sure ours is super rooted in Scripture. And that's why we do that every single Sunday. So error spreads through words. which is why we counteract it with words. Secondly, error is destructive. In verse 16, error leads to ungodliness. So maybe you're seeking to live a holy life and then the more you dive into one particular kind of false teaching, it makes you stop fighting your sin. It also spreads quickly in verse 17. Their talk will spread like gangrene. I don't recommend YouTubing or Googling what gangrene is unless you have kind of like a doctor's stomach. That's all I'll say about that. But it's bad and you don't want it. It ruins faith, he says in verse 14. Error does. Error ruins people's faith. It upsets people. Verse 18 says it's upsetting the faith of some. And a Greek word behind this is the word catastrophe, which, interestingly, is where we get our English word catastrophe. See how that works sometimes? So maybe sometimes you'll hear someone say this fire or this flood or this pandemic on our, the effect of the pandemic on our business has been nothing short of catastrophic. What they're saying is it has ruined them completely. And that's what Paul is using. This word here, it it just means ruined or destroyed. Destruction has come because of this erroneous teaching. And third, so error spreads through words. Error is destructive. And error, third, does the work of the evil one. Look at verse 26. Perhaps these people may come to their senses and escape from the snare or the trap of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The only other place in the New Testament that word captured shows up is in a passage we looked at last fall in Luke 5 where you saw this incredible Catch of fish, I don't believe, on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is out there with his disciples who were at that point were not yet his disciples. And they threw the net over one side and there were no fish. And Jesus said, throw it on the other side. And they captured a great capture of fish. And here what, what Paul is saying is that we have been captured in the same way. We've been bought, We've bought into the trap, into the lies, into the web of deceit of the evil one. And it has ruined people's lives. The Pharisees were people like this. Unbeknownst to them, I don't think most Pharisees were trying to be false teachers. I don't think most false teachers are trying to be false teachers. This is why we have to know the Bible so well. Why we have to go back again and again to the basics. Because the Pharisees, for instance, were people who accomplished the work of Satan without perhaps even realizing it. They thought they were defending the truth. We can be captured by Satan to do his will, and it seems like that's what Paul is saying about Hymenaeus and Philetus. And so these people who were at some point teaching the truth, Paul wouldn't have mentioned them if they had always been bad teachers. He's saying these guys used to be my coworkers. These guys used to be my friends. And now they're telling lies because they're doing the work of the evil one because they've been captured to do his will, not God's will. So be clear on the gospel, first of all, if you want to live a life that's useful to the master. Secondly, wage war against error. And third, chase after holiness. Now, I use that word chase after because I think it is picturesque and because it's basically synonymous in verse 22 with pursue Righteousness. But I also think it's a picturesque way of something we have experience with. We've all been chased by someone or something. We have all, uh, if you were romantically inclined towards someone, you chased after them and you weren't waiting for them to get, you know, to just passively put their attention on you. You were making sure that you chased after them, that you wouldn't just leave it up to chance. If you sought the perfect Christmas gift, you chased after the perfect Christmas gift for someone, you were willing to drive through slushy December roads. You were willing to stand in long lines in the store to see if they had it or to pay for it, and then go back out in the, in the busy traffic a couple days before Christmas. And all this says that, uh, all of this um, tells us we know what it is to chase something and to be chased as well, and this passage is urging us to chase holiness, to make this what you love what you pursue all of your life if you want to be useful to the master you want to make your life pleasing to god that means you need to chase after holiness and holiness means leaving sins behind verse 23 have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies have nothing to do with them I believe I put the wrong verse number down here, but there's another verse that sounds very similar to that. Let's go with verse 19 for one in case I don't have this (laughs) written down on the next line. I do actually, but we'll go to it anyway. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let's run away from sin. When he says in verse 22 to flee youthful passions, well, what comes to your mind when you hear that? Well, you probably think of things like sexual immorality. You should flee that. Just to be clear, but is that what Paul is talking about right here? Probably not, because think about all these terms he's already used about running away from quarrels, not listening to the words of error. I think he's saying sometimes we as youthful people, remember from 1 Timothy 4, don't let anyone look down on the fact that you are young. Here he's talking about the fact that you have young passions, the desire to always be right. Right. The desire to win the arguments, the desire to act like the smartest person in the room or make everybody else think you're that way. Every single Sunday, I prove to you I'm not by standing up in front of you. But sometimes it's a passion of young people to want to be proven right, which is why Twitter shouldn't exist in the first place, because there's a bunch of people arguing loudly and saying, I'm the only one with the truth on this matter. And Paul is saying, in context, I think, to avoid these useless, stupid arguments, babbling on about irreverent things in an irreverent way. So flee youthful passions, depart from iniquity. In verse 19, everyone who follows God, who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. And he says to cleanse yourself. Verse 20 through 21. Let me read this passage again, where he's talking about a house that has different kinds of objects in it, gold, silver, wood, and clay. So he says in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, these really nice things you might put out when guests come over, but you also have items, vessels of wood and clay. What's he talking about here? Especially when he talks about things that are being used for honorable purposes and dishonorable purposes. Maybe you might have a really nice even wooden bowl. So it's not just that you only use gold and silver when people come over. You have a really nice wooden bowl that you bought at Crate and Barrel. And you put a really nice salad in it. That's using it in an honorable way. But let's just go back to the first century. What would a dishonorable use for a bowl have been? You don't have to go back to the first century. Go back to like the 19th century when people didn't have bathroom facilities. You would use a bowl in a dishonorable way. And that's all we really need to say about that. But what Paul is saying is some vessels are used for honorable purposes and some for dishonorable, to hold the nasty stuff of life. But if you cleanse that, it can still be used in an honorable way. And I think what he's saying is we need to be continually cleansing ourselves. In verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, now you're going to be used for honorable things, for honorable use. You'll be set aside, you'll be set apart, you will be holy, be sanctified as holy, useful to the Master who is God Himself, ready for every good work. Did you know that God has good works for you to do as a Christian? And those often feel like they're kind of vague, but even Ephesians 2 that says we're saved by grace through faith for what? For good works. We aren't saved just for ourselves. We're saved to serve other people, which is why I'm so thankful for all of you who volunteered this past week in so many ways and for the fact that every single Sunday we have so many people who are volunteering. We have people who prepare the Lord's supper elements. We have people who make sure the air is on as much as we can control. We have people who turn on the lights, who unlock the doors, and who then lock the doors. And We could go on and on. We have people serving in children's ministry right now. We have people who take the offering. We have people who stand up in front of the congregation to lead. There are lots of other ways too. You have good works that God has designed for you to do but you can't do them while you're covered in the filth of sin. So chase after holiness which means leaving sins behind. And maybe you'd say that's just Paul's idea. No, it's really not. This is the Bible's idea. John talks about this in 1 John 3.3. Everyone who who has this hope that Christ is going to return that we're going to live with Him forever purifies himself as he is pure. It means you actively go to work on fighting your sin and cleansing yourself for God's glory. Holiness then also, secondly, means replacing sin with virtues. You have to run away from one thing, which inherently means you're running to something else. You're running away from youthful passion, so you can chase after righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And you do this in community with other people. In verse 22, the second half of verse 2, you do this along with those who call on the Lord. Who's that? Fellow Christians. Fellow church members. You do this in community. You need people who are running the right direction with you so that when you trip and fall, they can help you get back up and wipe you off and get you going again. You need other people who call on the Lord to run in the right direction with you, chasing after holiness. And the last part of verse 22 is really important as well. You do this with people who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What's he referring to there? And I think back to Ezekiel 36, and I really want to read this passage for you. You don't need to, write, uh, to turn there, but you can write it down and read it again later on. But Ezekiel 36 Verse 25 says, I will sprinkle, this is the Lord speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules Verse 29, again, I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. In other words, I think what this is referring to when Paul talks about calling on the Lord from a pure heart is that you have received the gift of conversion that Clayton prayed about in the pastoral prayer. You've been made alive. You no longer are drawn toward wickedness alone because you now have the Holy Spirit living within you. He's cleansed your heart. And so now you are drawn back toward the Lord as well. And we sang in our first song, I'm prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. That is every Christian's honest statement of truth. But those who have been made alive, who have a pure heart because you've repented and believed the gospel, you're also drawn toward the Lord. And so we have this inner war. Sometimes wanting to do what's right and not even... And thinking of sin as disgusting. And then five minutes later we think, oh, actually that sounds pretty good right now. We have a pure heart, though, means that you have been saved. It has been made pure because of the work of God himself. And so if you're not a Christian, you would say, I don't think I have a pure heart. Well, we would agree with you. If you're not a Christian, you don't have a pure heart. And the way you get that is by a work of God when you repent and believe the gospel. We urge you to do that today. Holiness has a lot of different ways to describe it. One is that you pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It also looks like kindness toward all in verse 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Holiness looks like patient endurance. Verse 10, verse 12, and verse 24, as with many other passages in our previous uh, passages here in 2 Timothy, talk about enduring everything patiently. Holiness looks like gentleness. Verse 25, correcting opponents with gentleness. We don't get red in the face, and get all angry about what people are saying and doing, we just correct them gently and move on and recognize that it sometimes it takes repeated warnings for people to hear the truth and respond to it. And maybe this holiness concept, this chasing after holiness concept, sounds difficult right now. Maybe you have actually been running the other direction and you're wondering whether it's even worth it to try and chase after holiness again. And if that's the case, if you need help with this, Maybe you have a sin habit that is eating you alive and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Please get help from a fellow Christian. Because even, even Christians have sin habits, okay? So I'm not talking only to non-Christians when I say that. I'm saying if you love Jesus and yet you are being pulled down and you're running through the mire right now, please get the help of a fellow Christian. Run to the light. Pursue the light rather than pursuing darkness and hiding in the darkness. So our fourth way then Finally, to follow the Lord, to live a life that is useful to the Master is to remain hopeful. Christians should be the most optimistic people in the world. Remain hopeful. We know the end of the story. When I'm reading a book to my kids or watching a movie with my kids and they get nervous about how it's all going to turn out, I can take all the tension out of the story with one statement. It has a happy ending. And you can do the same thing By turning all the way back to the end of Revelation and seeing it has a happy ending. Death dies because Jesus died. Sin is defeated. You go to the back of the Bible and it has a happy ending. 100% of the way. Life is that way. Life has a happy ending because God tells us in the Bible that life has a happy ending. So why should we remain hopeful? And I think there are three reasons in this passage. The first is in verse 9. That though you can put the best preacher in the world in jail, you cannot put the Bible in jail. God's word is not bound. There are pastors suffering all over the world today in jail because they preached what Paul said is my gospel. And they went to jail for it. But whatever those authorities thought they were doing, they did not bound bind the bible they did not take truth off the streets god's word cannot be bound so we should be hopeful because of that we should also be hopeful because god still saves sinners in verse 10 paul says i am enduring everything for the sake of the elect who's he talking about there those who have already been saved and those who are not saved yet but he's convinced they will be because god has set his mark on them God still saves sinners today. We celebrated the baptism of James Leckes a few weeks ago. That is proof, positive, that God still saves sinners today. And I want to encourage you to continue to bring your friends and your loved ones and tell them, I, have, I know a place where you're going to hear the truth. And I think you really need to hear it. And let the Holy Spirit do His work through the Word. All I'm doing right now is throwing seeds in the ground each of our hearts being the ground. And I'm letting God do His work in His way and in His time. And we're going to patiently wait. And so bring your friends and your loved ones to come and let the the Word sink into their hearts as well. Remain hopeful because God's Word is not bound, because God still saves sinners, and third, because even false teachers can repent. Look at verse 25. The Lord's servant corrects his opponents with gentleness And God may perhaps grant them, his opponents, people like Hymenaeus and Philetus, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and then they're going to come to their senses. They're going to be back in their right mind, perhaps for the first time in years. And maybe then those false teachers go and they take their videos off of YouTube. Maybe they delete their podcast. Maybe they stop preaching because they say, I disqualified myself and I just need to sit and hear the truth for a while. False teachers can still repent. Does that not encourage you? Someone who has walked in error for a long time and has caused other people to be walking in error, they are deceived and they're deceiving, and yet they may still repent because God is gracious enough to give them the gift of repentance. And he's gracious enough to give you that gift as well if you have yet to come to repentance. Yesterday I was at a park and I was talking to a lady who told me that she drives about 40 minutes each way for work. And I said, so how do you spend that time while you're driving? She goes, oh, I listen to audiobooks. What question would you ask? I said, so what audiobook are you listening to right now? And she said, she gave a title and I can tell you what it was. If you want to ask me, you can, but But uh, she told me about it, and she said, I can summarize it this way. The author himself tells you, if you're not going to read this whole book, here's what I'm going to tell you. So she said, he summarized it this way, use things, love people, worship the divine. Well, that sounds like it has some Christian ideas to it. So I said, and does that author tell you who the divine is? No, because it's different for everybody and I thought, no it's not. (laughs) No it's not. God himself tells us who is divine. He has given us the Bible to tell us everything we need to know about the divine. And so our response is to bow to him. As Psalm 2 would say, kiss the son. Don't rebel against him. Don't say, I want to cast these Bonds off of me. Get these handcuffs of submission to God off of me. No, kiss the Son. Bow to Him. Turn from your rebellion. Live as He tells us to live because He is the sovereign Master. He is the divine. He is the one who gets to tell it as it is. So use your life then to please Him no matter the cost. Let's close in prayer. Lord, may You give us hope. May you make us the most hopeful people in the world because you are still working in our hearts and you are still saving sinners. We pray that you would indeed make us people who are clear on the gospel, who wage war against error, who chase after holiness, and who remain hopeful. In Christ's name, amen.